It's a great pleasure for, to be here. And of course, the timing is excellent too. We had a word with Hank Paulson at the weekend and said if he could just wait until Sunday evening for announcing the terms of the bailout of Fanny and Freddie, that would be very good for this particular discussion. And he holstered his bazooka on Saturday. Well, I'm just going to say a few words about my two distinguished colleagues. Um, they've also asked me to promote their respective books coming out. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> On my left, in the red corner, Martin Wolf. He's associate editor and chief economics commentator of the FT. His book, I don't have the price, is Fixing Global Finance, and it will be published in October. And to my right, in the uh, green corner, or is it the blue corner? It's sometimes green, John. Um, he's, John is, John is a, one of Britain's leading economists. He is also one of the, I, I think, most distinguished um, economists who's made a real uh, mark in Britain in terms of setting up financial institutions and study centres. His book is The Long and the Short of It, on finance and investment, and it will be published in January. Martin, would you like to start? Thank you very much. First, to introduce this, I've known John, I should say this, for, I think, precisely 39 years. We were at the same college, and I regard him as pretty close to the cleverest person I know. So I'm not going to be stupid enough to make this uh, a head-on argument. And in particular... When we were asked to discuss the issue of financial regulation, the obvious response is, well, it depends what you mean by regulation. Since we're both economists, I think we're going to end up talking about the incentive structures within which financial institutions operate and whether they can be changed by quite fundamental changes in the rules within the, the framework of rules within which they operate. If uh, someone here is expecting me to say that actually I think the FSA should decide the strategy of every individual institution, how they should operate, what risk weightings they should put on everything they do. Um, I'm not going to propose that because it would obviously be, to use a favourite word of mine, mad. I think the differences are the, our, ex, our appreciation of the problem and of the possible regulatory solutions. I'm going to start then by discussing why I think we have a problem, apart from the obvious things like the overt public debt of the United States has just increased by 40% of GDP in the last day because they've recognized the reality, which is that it was always that much bigger than they pretended. So what's going on here? Why does this happen in financial systems? Well, there are some absolutely fundamental difficulties with all financial systems, which make them quite special, apart from the fact that they can make such a sensational mess of economies when they go wrong. First, fundamental perversities with incentives, asymmetric information, moral hazard because of the role of the state, problems of adverse selection and so forth. Secondly, a point that has was, has been emphasized most recently in the literature by Hyman Minsky, whose book, which I've been recently reading, is simply a marvelous account of the absurdities we've recently witnessed. Fundamental human frailties, euphoria and panic, overemphasis on the premise, and a pretty well universal tendency of human beings to believe that it is indeed different this time. Thirdly, there's simply vast opportunities for sheer crookedness. 
if you know vastly more than anybody else and are engaged in an incredibly complex and difficult activity that most people don't understand, often including your own colleagues, then the opportunities for theft are very large. And finally, it's simply incredibly difficult to understand the world and particularly the world of the future, which, of course, by definition, is what the financial sector deals with. So there is pretty clearly an inherent and deep tendency for liberalized financial systems to generate crises. Selling completely dud products, probably fairly well aware that they are dud products, is a perfectly normal business for a financial institution. So this is... And I have many stories on how well aware they were. So this is a very special activity. So what should we do in response? And I would like to stress, I'm not so naive as to believe that we can eliminate these crises altogether, but I would like to slightly to reduce their frequency and the costs they impose. Well, one possibility, of course, is to say that the right response is to do nothing whatsoever. I mean, good free market position for an economist will be should do nothing whatsoever, leave it to the market, let the institutions implode when they implode, and let the market sort it out. And I've got plenty of friends, particularly in the United States, who believe in principle this is a very nice idea. But of course, as soon as you think about it, you realize that is actually being proven again and again completely impossible. Every government however laissez-faire in principle, that has some capacity to intervene, has done so to stabilize financial systems because of the enormous damage it does to the economy and, of course, to their own political positions. So then that leads us to a second set of possibilities. And those fall, broadly speaking, into the clarification of how we deal with liquidity issues. Secondly, how we deal with deposit protection. And thirdly, how we deal with the bankruptcy regime. And I will insist these are all regulation. Liquidity provision, of course, goes back to the classic central lender of last resort doctrines. Interestingly, however, the question of what liquidity provision is has turned out to be incredibly difficult and controversial in this episode. And in fact, the practice of the different central banks has diverged very substantially in this area. Um, My own view, just to cut through all this, is that the lender of last resort function is a fundamental activity uh, of the state. Central banks are basically state institutions uh, because the state provides the ultimate means of payment in the system, money. The difficulty, however, is deciding against what sort of collateral and on what terms such liquidity can be provided. Now, it's obvious that the central banks could provide limitless liquidity against any collateral at no penalty whatsoever, in which case all the banks are simply being funded by the state, and we might as well not have them. That clearly wouldn't be, as private institutions, very satisfactory. On the other hand, we can have the position the Bank of England had, which is you can discount freely with us anything that you could discount freely in any market anyway. So that didn't seem very sensible either. My own view is that we are inching towards a somewhat more acceptable solution, which is that the range of acceptable collateral has to be wider than the Bank of England thought, but significant penalties must remain. The second question is the protection of depositors. I think there's no disagreement whatsoever that the protection of depositors offered by the British system was an invitation to a run in any situation in which there was some question about the solvency of the underlying institution, and therefore that had to be corrected, and that had to be linked to a third change, an introduction of a special bankruptcy regime that would put bank depositors automatically at the head of 
queue if an institution fails. As having personally contributed, and I'm very proud to say, to the Northern Rock Run, um, uh, which I regarded as a completely rational response to the information by the Chancellor of the Exchequer that the institution was completely sound. Uh, <laughs> and based on my full and proper understanding of the bankruptcy procedures of this country, I recognize that these three changes are central. Now, the third set of possibilities, big possibilities, are deep transformations of the financial structure. These are very, very fundamental changes. They go along with the broad notions of narrow banking. That is to say that those institutions that offer liquid deposits, um, that is to say those institutions that are allowed to pretend that their liabilities are the same things as real money, which is a ludicrous situation, by the way, to have, and, but we won't go into that. Those institutions should only uh, be allowed to invest in a very limited range of liquid first-class assets. Having such a defined set of institutions and making perfectly clear these are the only institutions in which your money can possibly be safe would uh, eliminate any need for special regimes for the banking system, the proponents would say. My view, however, is that, of course, we could create such institutions and we could insist that these are the only institutions that the government stands behind. Unfortunately or fortunately, we would have a huge uh, flourishing growth of the financial system round it, and periodically it would duly implode and the governments would find themselves dragged into saving this. So I don't believe this is actually a workable solution. So that leaves us with the fourth possibility that we actually have to think about regulation or rules for the system as a whole. And I have to say my views are changing constantly on this. Well, the first set of questions is, um, is it really possible to say that the public should not be protected from itself? And with the greatest reluctance, and I'm sure that this is the point at which I'm going to begin to get really strong resistance from the audience, I have decided that the public actually will have to be protected from itself. And I mean by this in particular that the requirement that there be genuine equity from investors who are purchasing housing and using the housing as collateral from loans, that there be some equity from them, that they're not taking loans which are equal to or exceeding the value of the properties they're buying, is actually going to be necessary if we're going to shield ourselves from the sort of disaster we're now seeing. So the second issue is what we should do about systemically important financial institutions. Now, what the characteristic of an institution that the people know the government will not allow to collapse is that creditors can plausibly believe that they will be bailed out when it does collapse. And the most striking characteristic of the series of rolling crises we've seen in the last year is that creditors have indeed been fully bailed out in all these major wipeouts in Northern Rock, in Bear Stearns, and of course most comprehensively and on its truly unbelievable scale in the $5.3 trillion bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now one of the consequences of operating an institution in which we know that the lenders will be bailed out is there's absolutely no reason for capital at all. Because the main reason for having equity, which is expensive in a business, is to cushion lenders. And if your government is going to cushion lenders, why have any equity? And it seems to me, therefore, that as long as we do operate in this world, that there is no alternative but to be looking much more carefully at the crucial thing, 
which is how much capital there is in the system. So it seems to me that the, the really big change has to be to force two things. Those systemically important financial systems should have fully consolidated balance sheets, which are trans as transparent as possible. No sieves or any equivalents should be permitted. And secondly, capital adequacy ratios should be at levels which are such that even in really bad periods, there is likely to be very significant capital left. So the capital adequacy ratios in good periods have to be really quite high. The way I see this working is that there will be a minimum capital adequacy ratio and a target ratio in good times, allowing you to have the cushion to avoid the pro-cyclicality of uh, forcing institutions to raise capital in a downturn, which is the situation we now have with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These higher capital adequacy ratios are, of course, a tax on the financial system, and that's exactly what they're intended to be, because... Uh, given the nature and scale of the guarantees, which, as I've argued, I don't think we're going to be able to go f get away from, with the amount of risk the government is, in fact, implicitly bearing with large institutions, there doesn't seem to me any alternative but a countervailing tax. So long as we have institutions which are demonstrably too big to fail, if they're too big to fail, they are too big not to regulate, and above all, they're too big not to demand really substantial capital cushions. And that is the proposal I would make. And this is what I have called a case for regulation. I have also argued, but I hope you realize, many of my readers didn't somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that it would be most desirable to regulate the pay of all bankers, because basically I think it's a racket. I worked out that when Stan O'Neill left Merrill Lynch, an institution he destroyed, he left with a payoff which will pay for the salaries of the Federal Reserve Board for 100 years. That is what I mean by a racket. But I'm not suggesting, in fact, that we should regulate the pay. I would very much like it if the banks themselves did a better job of controlling their pay structures. My key proposals are the ones I put forward, and I think they would go a long way towards reducing the absurdities, which though they will certainly never come close to eliminating the absurdities we've seen. Well, thank you, Martin. Um, thank you for that tour de force. I do recall, actually, in a, in a column late last year when you were, that you came very close, if not explicitly, you called for the regulation of compensation of bankers. And I know that because in January, when I was attending the Anglo-French summit, a very dapper Frenchman with a loud tie came up to me and said, I would like to congratulate the Financial Times for its brilliant coverage of the credit crisis. And... Uh, particularly Martin Wolf, who has called for the regulation of bankers' pay. And when I told Martin he was so horrified, I think that's why he's changed his position. <laughs> well, I, th I think my response would be that in France it would be a very good idea. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, over to you, John. You probably came into this room feeling that I'm on to a bit of a hiding presenting this uh, <clears throat> case today when uh, Fanny May and uh, Freddie Mac have collapsed, been nationalized in, in effect, and markets have leapt in enthusiasm as, as a result. Isn't it obvious that more regulation is not only required, but the solution? Well, let's hold on a moment. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were probably the most intensively regulated private businesses in the world. There is in the United States a specialist agency 
called the Office of Federal Housing Enterprise Oversight, which has no function other than the regulation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It employs, according to its last report, 236 people to do this job. Its mission is to promote housing and a strong national housing finance system by ensuring the safety and soundness of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, to be fair, although there are more than 200 employees in OFHEO, they are, in aggregate, paid less than the amount that Franklin Raines, the now-disgraced chief executive of Fannie Mae, was paid. Franklin Raines, you may recall, was fired by the board four or five years ago after disclosure of accounting irregularities, but he was the man who had grown Fannie Mae to its present size. And in that comparison of salaries, you may start to see part of the problem. Because I want to make clear that I'm not here as a libertarian who believes that any regulation of markets is the work of the devil. In fact, I'm probably a more natural interventionist in markets than is my colleague Martin. All I want to do is to be realistic and modest about what regulation can actually achieve. Because it's all very easy for us to say that these evils, these problems, these difficulties would be removed by better regulation. Of course they would. If regulators were all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, and yet entirely benevolent in their intentions, and nevertheless willing to work at these jobs for an average salary, one 236th of the amount paid to Franklin Reigns, then we could all achieve consumer protection, financial stability, the integrity of the financial system. But the truth is, we live in an imperfect world. We need regulation, but the only regulation we will ever have is regulation which will be operated by people of limited capabilities and with limited knowledge. And there's no point in designing a regulatory system in any other way. That doesn't mean that we should avoid regulation, but it does mean that we could, should target narrow regulation as narrowly as possible when I talk to students about the structure of regulation, I tell them the classic story of regulation, which is the story of the regulation of the U.S. airline industry. Airline regulation was introduced in order to protect the public by regulating airline safety. But then two phenomena, which are common to most experience of regulation, came into play. The first was regulatory creep. That is, that the scope of regulation was expanded to include more and more aspects of the conduct of the airline business, routes and fares, and in effect to operate a cartel on behalf of the industry. It is famous that IATA once laid down rules as to what constituted a sandwich. At the same time as regulatory creep, there was what is called regulatory capture. The industry, which initially resented regulation, came rather to like it, as most industries do, playing the regulatory game 
was something that they, they could use to their advantage at the expense of other firms. In the end, however, in the United States, the structure of airline regulation was swept away by an odd coalition of the right who believed that that regulation was a, an unwarranted interference with market forces, and the left who believed that what was being operated was a racket on behalf of large corporations. Both these criticisms were fully justified. There was then an uncomfortable period in which some established carriers like Pan American and Eastern Airlines went broke, but in the end, consumers were better served, the industry was more efficient, and safety remains well protected. I think there are some lessons in that experience which ought to be applied here. If we go back to Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae was established as part of the New Deal by Roosevelt in 1938 to stimulate house building in the United States by giving government guarantees for mortgages. It may at that time have served a useful purpose. I don't really know. What I do know is that the mortgage market can work perfectly well without government guarantees, as indeed the mortgage market in Britain did work perfectly well until people screwed it up recently in the name of promoting mortgage-backed securities, which was thought to be a desirable form of financial innovation. Certainly, however, by the 1960s, while customers and financial institutions rather liked the fact that the U.S. government was in the business of guaranteeing mortgages, it was very difficult to see any compelling reason why such an institution should have existed. But actually, state agencies, once established, rarely go away. It was transformed into a sort of shareholder-owned company, and it then grew by exploiting the difference between the rate at which you can borrow money with an effective government guarantee on your borrowings and the rate at which you can lend money in the commercial money market. And under the wise stewardship of Franklin Reigns, it came to use that to build up a balance sheet, which today is formidable even by the, the standards and scale of the U.S. government. Now, to give them credit where it's due, the regulatory agency uh, of the EO and even more the Federal Reserve were greatly concerned by the growth of Fannie Mae's liabilities. But they were actually seen off by the power of Fannie Mae and its associates in lobbying in Congress, uh, and it was attractive to other financial institutions, and it was most of all attractive to consumers that Fannie Mae should go on expanding its operations. So the lessons of Fannie Mae, it seems to me, are not that we need more regulation. The lessons, as I see it, are first of all that government agencies have an intrinsic tendency to expand and develop their roles. And that means that government intervention in markets should be embarked on only very carefully and should be targeted on very specific objectives. Next, it means, and Martin has already emphasised this point, that a situation like that created at Fannie Mae, at which the private sector takes the upside 
and the taxpayer takes the downside is one which is likely to prove very expensive for taxpayers. We should also learn that the effective regulation of powerful private sector institutions is severely constrained by the political clout which these private sector institutions enjoy, and that in the financial services sector, we have probably what is today the most powerful political lobby in the country. I'd now like to say a little about a UK regulatory failure which is the regulatory failure of Equitable Life. Equitable Life's business strategy was to pay out something close to the full value of the assets and the goodwill of business attributable to policyholders' funds at the time at which their policies matured. That was a somewhat risky policy because it meant that uh, the business didn't create the semi-hidden reserves which most life insurance companies in Britain did create. But the company consoled itself with the observation that the contractual entitlement of its policyholders was much less than the amounts which were going to be paid out, so that provided the cushion from which the business could work. Actually, when business risk and investment risk materialised in the company, it turned out that there was a a rather large demand for the amount policyholders should be, had been led to expect, and that led ultimately to the collapse of the business. The Government Actuaries Department repeatedly challenged what it was that equitable management was doing. In that respect, it emerges much better than the Board of Equitable Life, which was dominated by an assertive chief executive, And the Government Actuaries Department also emerges rather favourably relative to the rating agencies, which uh, maintained a consistently favourable rating of Equitable's financial strength, up more or less to the date at which the business collapsed. The regulator, in short, did a better job than either the board or the private sector rating agency. What the regulator did not do was when faced with a rather robust response on the part of equitable life management, it didn't press the point. When the FSA finally did it, they were threatened with judicial review and the company went to complain to ministers. So the failing was not to have pressed the point. Neither was, the parliamentary ombudsman says, a duty of prudential supervision, which the regulator failed to discharge. And I have to say, if there is a duty of prudential supervision, I think she is probably right. But I have to say, if that is the outcome, that is not a place I want to be. Do we really believe the government should adopt a duty, should have, as it claims to have at the moment, a duty of prudential supervision of regulated financial institutions in this country? I think we all agree that there should be a regulatory intervention to ensure the proper conduct of business, to get fraudsters out of the financial services industry, to ensure that procedures for segregating client money are properly implemented, to ensure there are decent measures of consumer protection. But do we think that the obligations of the regulator should extend to matters of business strategy, unless these business strategies are criminal in nature, 
And I think we really can't say in either of the failure cases we recently have, like Equitable Life or Northern Rock, that they fall into that particular category. If one is to ask fundamental questions about business strategy, it would be entirely reasonable to have asked the same fundamental questions about business strategy, about Bradford and Bingley, and about larger British financial institutions. Is that what we want the regulator to do? And if it is what we want the regulator to do, who do we think the people who are actually going to take on this task are? We're talking about people who are going to have the status and the authority to stand up to the people who run our major banks, presumably for a fraction of the salary. The regulatory duty of prudential supervision, which apparently we have at the moment, is not what our current regulators really do, nor indeed is it what they could do. And I don't believe it is desirable for them to do it, because for them actually genuinely to perform it would amount to the semi-nationalisation of the British financial sector. I want, in that sense, to roll back the claimed scope of regulation to give the public sector a duty of a kind that can be realistically discharged. It should be aimed at fraud and crime. It should be aimed at the protection of small consumers. It should, above all, protect the payment system. And what I mean by protecting the payment system is that individuals and non-financial businesses can make and receive deposits and payments without having to worry about them. Protecting the payment system does not, to my mind, mean there should be any obligation on the government of any kind to make a market in a wide variety of esoteric securities that people in the financial services business happen to dream up, which indeed is the way in which the provision of liquidity has been interpreted over the last few months. In that sense, I think the the strict line that the governor of the Bank of England has tried to take is absolutely right. Targeted regulation then implies, as Martin has described, protection for retail depositors and small business customers. It means a proper deposit protection scheme. It means a special administration scheme for failed banks. Most countries have had these things for years, and it is outrageous that we didn't have them. It means that government should stand ready to provide cash in return for absolutely first-rate value for that cash. But that falls very far short of providing liquidity for a whole variety of securities. And it also means that the deposit protection scheme, the taxpayer, in effect, should have priority in the liquidation of a failed financial institution. Because I think that is the element that makes a really significant change from where we are now. That doesn't mandate what what Martin has described as narrow banking, but it takes one a long way towards it. Because either businesses that take retail deposits from the public would have to have genuinely first-class collateral, or they would have to be organizations of such financial strength that wholesale customers would nevertheless happily lend to them. It gives the private sector incentives to police, 
and it gives the private sector incentives to seek private solutions for the problems that are today being landed on the public. It's clear that more regulation in some sense in the financial sector is now inevitable. I believe that as that regulation develops, we should impose two clear requirements. One is that we should not give to public bodies responsibilities that they cannot discharge. Secondly, that regulation should be narrowly focused on the specific evils that regulation is designed to prevent. That is, that regulation should not be designed to ensure general practice or sound business in some, in some very broad sense. When Mr. Darling talked to the select committee about regulation in the context of the failure of Northern Rock, he said it would have been better if at an earlier stage someone had said we should do something about it. I think that illustrates precisely the problem which I should like us to get away from. We should not have regulation that means someone else should do something about it. Regulation should be targeted on specific objectives and confined to the measures needed to achieve these specific objectives. Thank you, John. Before I open this up, I'd just like to try and capture a couple of points that you made and then pass them on to Martin for comment. Uh, you were very clear that regulators should not target business strategy or behavior, but criminal actions. You, in effect, said that regulators should not save the public from folly, and you said that, on the other hand, that more regulation was inevitable. Is it not the case that we've, in a sense, come to the end of an era, the high watermark of deregulation, which goes back not to the, just to the abolition of Glass-Steagall, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, but the kind of deregulation that we saw in the 1970s in the airline industry. We've seen us enter a new world of moral hazard, where institutions, financial institutions, really are too big to fail. Now, in the mid-1930s, Franklin Roosevelt helped create a new institutional architecture to regulate the financial services industry. What chance do you think and how desirable it would, would it be for that kind of response in 2008-2010? Martin. I'm reasonably sure that the sort of regulation that John condemns, and which I certainly don't have much sympathy for, there will be a pretense of more of it. The government will pretend and the institutions will make sure it doesn't work. What happened in the course of the 30s was a response to the extraordinary catastrophe of the 30s. And that led effectively to a large, a long period in which the financial sector really was, a, to all intents and purposes, a branch of the state. I hate to say this in this audience, but the 50s and 60s were a sensationally successful period of economic development in, the, in Europe and the United States, on many measures the most successful ever, and there were no financial crises. Going back to that seems to me completely infeasible unless we have a comparable disaster, and it doesn't seem likely we will have it. Now, let me just make one final remark. What I think is the problem with John's view, but I'm not saying that I have an answer, is we have, in the process of developing our modern system, attached a vast casino activity to a guaranteed utility in which the state has the most profound interest. And whether we like it or not, it is demonstrated in the last year that the state, including, after all, the Republican administration of the United States, 
has not been willing to allow the liabilities of the casino to fail. And in that situation, simply allowing the casinos to operate freely is intolerable. So you have to think of ways of either disassembling this and in such a way that, that, which is what John has been talking about, that you can then say the casinos can go away and operate as they like. I find this extremely implausible because I think their operations are too fundamental to the way the economy works. That's why they intervened in Bear Stearns in the end, even though it was not, of course, an institution that came under Fed purview. Or you have to find a way, relatively simple intervention, of a framework kind that makes these casinos operate in ways that are less likely to lead to uh, vast liabilities for the state. But I think the crucial point is to understand the nature of the difficulty in the case of liquidity provision. And whatever John would like and whatever Mervyn would have liked, and I strongly supported Mervyn, the the truth is we are going to end up with the, the Bank of England providing liquidity to a wide range of junk. So we have a very, very big problem created by the nature of the system and the implicit guarantees towards that system and the political response to failure in that system, which goes beyond the relatively narrow purview of the things that John is interested in and that I personally would like to see us limited to. So I'm quite clear that there's a very fundamental problem in the working of this system. And the result, I think, of the present set of interventions across the world will be the next crisis will be bigger. Well, we do know that the um, Las Vegas casinos are regulated by more people than just the Nevada Gaming Commission, but I'm not suggesting you, you call in. People, yeah. That would make um, a long difference. But over to you, John. When you say that more regulation is, is inevitable, could you give us some idea of what you think would be desirable? I mean, in a way that will depress perhaps the audience, I agree with almost everything that Martin has just said. I mean, I think the regulation which will come will be of exactly the form that uh, governments will pretend to supervise these activities more closely. That will, in practice, have very little significance, and it would be seen off by the banks if it were to have more than the nominal significance. And that does mean that the next crisis will be a good deal worse. So what I think should happen would be a regulator or right measures which are effectively designed, as Martin put it, to separate the casino from the utility. And that is what the kind of proposals I was putting forward would have done. Now, that means I would have been prepared to have allowed Northern Rock and Bear Stearns to fail. As far as Northern Rock was concerned, that was not possible because the deposit protection scheme was inadequate and because we didn't have a proper special administration scheme. If we had these things, there was every reason for allowing and indeed promoting the result that Northern Rock failed. It's true that the failure of Bear Stearns uh, would have had very large consequences for the U.S. financial system as a whole, But unless we're prepared to accept the failure of at least one wholesale financial institution, we are in the position that Martin has described of implicitly providing long-term guarantees of these liabilities to everyone in the world. Well, here's a little newsflash from the uh, panel here that we have an outbreak of peace between the contestants. (laughs)